0: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have decided to bring you something completely and utterly different today. We are not going down our usual military or medieval. Instead, we have decided to talk about food today. So we've invited Catherine Spires, who is a food historian. She runs her own podcast called Smart Mouth, which talks about food, its origin and the history behind it. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. We are so, do you know what? I? We didn't know where to go with this podcast. So I just said to Catherine, I said, let's pick a subject, let's pick some food and let's talk about it.
1: That's right. Yeah. And we decided on desserts because everyone likes eating desserts and hearing about them too. <laughs>
0: oh, any desserts for me. I mean, I was stuffing my face of chocolate the other day that a student bought me. I was like, yes, just keep me fat with all that sugar. Hey, listen, if it tastes good, it's it should be eaten, I think. Oh, I'm I seri- I'm a serious chocolate lover, but we haven't got that much chocolate on our list today.
1: Never no, mind. actually, we don't. Yeah, we, um, we went in interesting, interesting desserts.
0: <laughs> so I actually went and asked Alex to pick her favorite dessert. So we'll start with that one. So let's start with Parkin', which is some northern, that's as far as I know, some northern dessert. Northerners, yeah, This was,
1: I think it's so funny that she chose this because it is barely known outside of, like, the northern England area. It is so, so, so so specific. It's kind of like gingerbread. There usually is a little bit of ginger in it, but the base is oatmeal, and then there's molasses or treacle. Is that how that word is pronounced, treacle? we don't say it in America. Yeah, what do you say in America? We just don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) We use molasses, and then we'll say syrup, but treacle is not in American English.
0: Treacle is also a term of endearment, like, hello there, treacle.
1: That is so funny to me. That, that's <laughs> hilarious.
0: <laughs> Moving away from terms of endearment. Right, so you've told us what this whole dessert is based about. Can you tell us the history behind it? Yeah, so
1: it um, first shows up in print in the 1700s, which means it's been around for at least... A generation before that. But the reason it shows up in print is actually because um, a woman was um, tried for stealing oatmeal to make Parkin. And that's, so that's the article that was written about. That was the first time that it shows up in print. There's another word though. Well, it's a phrase, it's two words. Farf cake. <laughs> so, sorry, say that again. Farf cake. T-H-R-A-F. Farf cake. And it is believed that that is a precursor because it's cooked on a griddle. And, you know, back in, in the times when not everybody had their own oven, um, it was easier to do baked goods on a griddle. And then when the community ovens came into play, then people started baking them, and that's considered fancier. So so the parkin is kind of like an upscale
0: farf cake. soft <laughs> cake. Um, I'm going to do that in a restaurant. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to say, hello. Can I have some soft cake, please? P- yeah,
1: people would think something had gone terribly wrong. It does, it, it's, it's a very strange word. Um, but what's interesting here, too, is the switch when they went from honey to molasses. Because, you know, honey was Britain's sweetener before the slave trade. But when they started making sugar, and molasses came into play. And then the the parkin incorporated molasses. So now we've got it's baked not griddled and it's molasses not honey. So we're like just scooting along here getting fancier and fancier by the day.
0: Does but it get know, any fancier?
1: No. It stops oh. there. And it's traditionally you like eaten just in the fall. It's like kind of in 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 ancient times it was uh, a fall harvest treat. You know, when they were still using honey. Um, but tell me, in in England,
0: is Guy Fox Night still part of your culture? Oh, gosh, yes. Do you know, living in Poland, it's a bit weird. Coming across the 5th of November, you're kind of like, where are the fireworks? I feel a little bit lost.
1: I see. Okay, yeah. So this Parkin is a traditional Guy Fox Night
0: bonfire night treat. Do you know what? You need to send me the recipe or find me a good recipe. And in about two weeks, I about two weeks time the Sky Forks. I don't even know what date it is anymore. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to make it and I'm going to pretend there's fireworks outside. I'm going to stuff my face a little bit. Good. You'll feel like you're at home, but I have to
1: say, um, I'm going to have to send you the recipe soon. Because Apparently you're supposed to let it sit for up to a week to make it taste actually good. That's another element of it too. You got to make it and then put it in the cupboard. and then eat it a week later. Like, the flavor's got to meld, the oatmeal's got to soften enough. you got to pre-plan.
0: That is... Does it not kind of rot or decompose? (laughs) Well, I'm thinking this might be another reason why it's an
1: autumnal treat and not a summer treat. Apparently not. It's cold enough that it won't.
0: Oh, that is also true. So don't put it in a hot cupboard.
1: Yeah, not a hot hot cupboard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was Alex's choice. Yes. Let's go for my choice because everyone loves this dessert. And if you don't love this dessert, get off the podcast.
1: Well, the thing about trifle, which is your choice, is that it can be really personalized. Trifle just sort of means, well, as you know, it means like a thing of no importance. That's the root of the word. And then it got transferred to this dessert which really goes to show that it's just like, oh, a little of this and a little of that. It's that kind of dessert, no real recipe. And I know that when bakers mess up a bake, um, they'll just be like, that's fine, we're going to chop it up and make a trifle out of it. (laughs) So it's kind of like a, a saving dessert, saving your hide. So trifles come from the Renaissance, probably, Renaissance England. Except that there's another Middle Eastern dish called fool. It's very similar, or it was similar then. Now it's more of a savory dish, but in the Middle East, in the medieval period, it was a, a sweet dish. And in England, um, up until the 1700s, fool and trifle were used interchangeably. This first makes a appearance in the written word in a cookbook in 1585 called The Good Housewife's Jewel. Isn't that a romantic name for a cookbook? <laughs> Or an extremely insulting one, one or the other. I haven't decided.
0: (laughs) My mind is wandering somewhere where it shouldn't. Oh, right. It's also
1: filthy, of course. (laughs) Um, And one of (laughs) we'll get to more filth later on with another one of the dessert. That's as filthy as trifle gets. But so it was um, biscuits or cookies, depending on who's listening. Um, They were soaked in wine straight up wine, and then you put custard on top of it, and then you pour syllabub, which isn't really used anymore, but at the time it was just like these biscuits and various creams. It's only later in the 1800s when you start adding, like, fruits and more interesting um, ingredients like that, topping it with almonds, cherries, that sort of thing. That's a relatively recent addition to it.
0: I've got to say, I don't think I like the original version. The modern version is more to my liking.
1: Yeah, it has more going on. It certainly has more flavors. Although, I did want to bring up Tres Leches Cake, because I think it's very similar. I think the idea is very similar. Actually, um, all the desserts we've talked about right now um, are desserts that are made to be revived, essentially. And with trifle, it was done with dairy products. And then there's a cake in Central and South America called tres leches cake, uh, which literally means three milks because they put three different kinds of milk in it, including, most importantly, um, condensed milk, which is a product that is used in a lot of desserts in the quote-unquote new world, because not everybody was getting fresh products all over the place, especially in areas where there were no cattle, like Central
0: America. So if you're lactose intolerant avoid this avoid this dessert.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely not for you. Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> but
1: there was there's another much more famous or at least in the um Anglo world much more famous dessert that is also made with condensed milk and that is key lime pie.
0: Isn't that really American rather than like British? Extremely American. Okay. Extremely. I'm just I'm just trying yeah. to Understand which part of this, you know, the Atlantic Ocean I'm looking at at this point.
1: You know, I say extremely American and I'm immediately going to take that back. And it's not even American, it's, um, it's from the Keys, the Florida Keys, very specifically. And they call themselves conch. Like they are, when you are from the Keys, you're a conch. And so I'm going to say it's specifically that subgroup that key lime pie is mostly associated with. But there's some drama about the origins of key lime pie,
0: a a big deal in the food world. (laughs) Go on, go on, tell us. We like drama, we like filth, we like smut.
1: So traditionally, after white people started showing up in the Keys, a big industry was sponge diving, so getting like actual, actual natural sponges, and they were called... The people who fished for these were called spongers or hookers, which is kind of funny. Um, I looked it up. Apparently it has nothing to do with prostitution. <laughs> oh what do you do? I'm a hooker. Right. And then, and then end of sentence with an arched eyebrow and be like, do you have follow up questions? <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: sorry for my bad jokes this afternoon. Apologies. Keep going. Quite all (laughs) So the spongers or hookers, they would
1: stay out at sea for a very long time, so they didn't have very much fresh food while they were out in the boats. Also, they were not a rich people. So the idea is that because the Florida Keys were getting canned products, so sweetened condensed milk in particular, um, mix that with some eggs and some lime juice, And then put it on top of stale bread, and it soaks into, again, with the soaking, (laughs) it soaks into the bread a little bit, and there's the treat. So this is one theory of how it came up. By the way, key lime pie is usually just made with Persian limes, or the regular kind of limes, because there are barely any key limes left. None of them grow in the Florida Keys anymore. They're also extremely small, hard to work with, and don't yield a lot of juice, so when we say key lime pie, we're being a little hoity-toity. It's just lime pie,
0: really. Can I, can I ask a really stupid question? Please. I'm assuming that a key lime is specifically indigenous to that area, right? Um, the key limes are,
1: well, okay, it depends because how far back does it, does something have to go for you to
0: consider it indigenous? I don't know because I'm quite confused. Is a key lime a specific type of lime or is it just a lime? It's
1: a specific type of lime. It is. It's smaller and it's more on the sweet side than Persian limes, which, and I keep saying Persian limes, but they're like mostly grown in Mexico. That's just the variety of them. Um, But they're so finicky to work with and anyway a hurricane killed most of them
0: (laughs) in the in in the keys so they kind of just don't even exist there anymore so if i do come to america and i ask for a key lime high do you think they'll get offended if i ask them if it's a regular lime or is this a key lime offended no they'll
1: probably just be like who cares? <laughs>
0: <But if laughs> I I'm think it would be the very American answer. But if I'm having an actual, you know, a product which is supposed to be American from Florida, I want the actual product. You know, I don't want to come to Poland and, you know, eat pierogi that were made in America, for example. I want to eat pierogi that were made in Poland with Polish produce.
1: I think that's really fair. I totally understand your point of view. Um but. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's not going to ta- yeah, it's not going to taste different. They could lie to you and you wouldn't know the difference. Now, saying that, there are probably some citrus aficionados listening who are like, "How fucking dare you say that they are completely different fruits?" I'm going to say man, flavor, I don't think that many people can tell the difference between a lime pie and a key lime pie. And also another thing, you'll very rarely, if ever see lime pie listed on a menu or something they always say key lime pie whether they mean
0: it or not <laughs> <laughs> well cheesecake factory do a key lime cheesecake god probably i've seen it didn't try it because i don't know what it was
1: <laughs> it's i bet it's
0: good it's just lime flavored cheesecake i'm definitely going to do that now now when i come back to america if we can get back to america ever at this rate um i'm definitely going to have because there's no point in me trying it here it's not going to be the same
1: no no definitely don't but are you
0: specifically going to go to cheesecake factory when you come to the u.s no i'm usually on the east coast so something on the east coast if you know anybody wants to recommend a good place for key lime pie just not florida because i'm not going that far (laughs) why won't you go to florida because it's far.
1: <laughs> I've been to the Miami airport. It's a lovely airport. <laughs> did, you, did you have key lime pie in Miami airport? No. I had um, uh, a Cubano sandwich, which is ex- technically from Tampa, not Miami. But I was like, close. this is the closest all I've ever been to Tampa. So I had it. It was actually among the best airport food I've ever had.
0: That actually sounds like a really interesting podcast to do. The Sandwiches of History.
1: Yes. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. We're sandwiches can be meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And start with the Cuban sandwiches because that's a real interesting history. Take my word for it.
0: <laughs> You're going to come back and we're going to do the history of sandwiches. But n- hold on. Before we start going on a tangent. Um, yes. You mentioned there's another reason or possible reason why it's made the way it is what's the other reason
1: well there's another origin story that is sort of like a it's a very american origin story it's it's essentially that there was a man in the 1800s his name was william curry and he is apparently florida's first self-made millionaire he was a ship salvager he just which is essentially being a legal pirate exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh apparently he had a cook, uh, pro- whether she was a slave or a servant, hard to tell because he lived both before and after the Civil War. But apparently it was Aunt Sally who created this pie in the 1800s. The reason I say that's a very American story is because it it's something we do. We like to come up with these sort of homespun stories about who invented our food. Um, There was a recent scuffle about Aunt Jemima, the brand of pancake syrup, Mm. and there's a lot of that going on in our food culture. It's like, well, it was this African-American woman who loves to cook and doesn't use recipes, and she made this, and that's why it's so good. We do that a lot, which is insulting on so many levels. Um, One of the levels being that people have recipes, (laughs) and whether they wrote them down or not, they are recipes.
0: So which one do you think is more likely?
1: Well, if I were to choose between one of these, I think I would actually go the Aunt Sally route, even though whether a woman of that name existed or not. But the idea of a professional cook in a rich person's kitchen in the 1800s, figuring out what to do with the weird mix of ingredients that they had available To them in the Florida Keys at that point, which at the time you could only reach by boat, hence the canned food, I would say that it would be probably a professional cook. Now, having said that, I think that it was a professional cook slash food scientist because I actually think it was created by a food company.
0: So, poor hookers and sponges, they don't get their limelight.
1: I know. (laughs) (laughs) Limelight. Delightful. (laughs)
0: Wow, I am on a proper roll today with uh, with my jokes. I don't care. Let's keep. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
0: <laughs> I'm just gonna try and not say this in a dirty way, so I do apologize for our next one. Um, we're gonna be talking about some sesame balls. Hmm.
1: Indeed, we are. Um. And you know, you've got an attitude about these—a silly attitude—and I'm just gonna go ahead and say, "Well, sesame balls are one of my favorite desserts." Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I <clears throat> I am a child. <laughs> I don't apologize. So uh, the actual name is if I pronounce this correctly, uh Jin Dewey. So I'm assuming well these are not Western Western bowls. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs>
1: these are Eastern. Um I okay, so this to me is such an interesting story. So um what they are, they're fried and they're made from glutinous rice. Right- rice flour that is then has a filling of some sort, usually a red bean paste filling, and then it's rolled in sesame seeds. And well, actually, I don't know if you fry it before you add the sesame seeds, or if you add the sesame seeds and then fry it. Gosh, you'd think I would know that. But I don't. So my, basically, my only experience with these is um, at dim sum. So it's mainly these days, a Cantonese dish. And Anyone who is going to a Cantonese restaurant and hasn't had these yet, please try them. I think that they are a flavor sensation that you can't get anywhere else. Okay, let's go back in time to the early Middle Ages. (laughs) Only? So, what? Only to the early Middle Ages? Yeah, that's it. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So, there is a city that is now called Xi'an and it's in China and depending on where you're looking from it is either the finishing point of the Silk Road or it's actually the starting point of the Silk Road and we all know that the Silk Road is what the famous trade route where all the luxuries came and went through the continents in the early to mid-middle ages um so Xi'an, because it was the starting slash ending point of the Silk Road, of course had people from all over the old world living and trading and working there. It was a very cosmopolitan place. It became, in, there, in this era, um, one of the wealthiest cities in the world and also one of the biggest cities in the world. It had almost a million people living there. Wow. In the Middle yeah. Ages. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible this place was bustling (laughs) Wow! and so it also became um the capital you know Chinese history um sort of similar to Italian history in that it wasn't necessarily one unified country until extremely recently so you've got all the dynasties the controlled areas that are more or less China and Xi'an was the capital for a lot of these different dynasties um the Tang dynasty was the last one to use Xi'an as its capital, and this is absolutely wild. It went from being almost a million wealthy people living there to it got ransacked by another group, and almost everybody left. They were just out of there. That's a really sad so, story. It is really sad. It, it's interesting But also, I've been to Xi'an once, and I absolutely loved it. Um, And this was before I knew anything about anything, I'm going to say. But we arrived in Xi'an because it's the town that you stay in when you want to go see the Terracotta Army, which is pretty famous for tourists in Japan. Um, And then we got off the train there, and I didn't realize that it was a very Muslim town. And the culture there was just absolutely fascinating. It was nothing that I was familiar with. I learned so much on that trip specifically how many Chinese Muslims there are I had no idea yeah and of course now there is um, potentially a genocide happening with Chinese Muslims so it's good for us now especially to know about the history and the culture of that this is such a depressing tangent from Sesame Balls but this is actually the way it sometimes goes in food history
0: um, (laughs) it's actually quite interesting It's, it's something that we should talk about and um something that possibly we could do more about on on this podcast
1: i i think you should because i think like like i said i was in my mid 20s i think on that trip and had no idea about how robust and interesting chinese islamic culture was and the food oh my gosh the food is so good (laughs) there is one um Uyghur restaurant Uyghur is the um, ethnic group that's usually the Chinese Muslim people and there's a Uyghur restaurant in Los Angeles and it is one of my favorite restaurants in the city and Los Angeles has a lot of great restaurants so I do believe that's saying something it's worth looking into when I'm in LA
0: you need to take me
1: I absolutely will I'll probably
0: make you go twice. <laughs> that's, that's, that is that's fine with me. I love uh, Asian, Asia, the Asian kitchen from Chinese, Japanese, Cantonese, Thai, Vietnamese. You can never yeah. go wrong.
1: I kind of agree. I think Vietnamese food is my favorite food.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Can we do a podcast on Vietnamese food, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on with the back and forth with colonialism.
0: That is, that is something that we have, we've done one podcast on Vietnamese history. It would be interesting to do something on Vietnamese food. Let's do it. Let's do it. But anyway, back, back to, back to our (laughs) sesame balls. (laughs) So one of the things that
1: happens when people leave a city en masse is they take all their culture with them, including their food. So this is one of a very old recipe. It used to be pretty much predominantly made with red bean paste, the filling. Um, But as people spread out over Asia, it kind of took on different variations. So you can find this dessert all over Asia, but the fillings are going to be different according to, you know, what's available locally. So in Cambodia, it's not red bean paste, it's mung bean paste. And in Malaysia, they fill it with coconut and or other nuts. Um, Vietnam actually does sweet versions, but it also does savory versions of this. Yeah, savory version. So at, you know, put meat or something in the middle of it, but it's still the same exterior. (laughs) Uh, In the Philippines, they do, they fill it with ube, which is purple taro. So ube is one of my favorite dessert flavors. Sesame balls are one of my favorite desserts. I have to get my hands on one of these Filipino versions because it sounds like it's what I was
0: meant to eat. (laughs) <laughs> I've got I've got to say, they sound interesting, so I think I'm gonna have to have a go because I've never had them before.
1: They're yeah, they are really interesting. They're not you know, Asian desserts are less sweet than Western desserts. So it kind of like takes a second to be like, Oh, I am into this. I don't know, I think for a Western palate, but once you're into it, you're hooked if you're if you're me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm hooked with any desserts. Give me any desserts and I'm I'm down for it. So We've got one last one, um, and I keep, I'm trying to say this correctly because my brain doesn't want to connect when I read this, so I'm going to try and say it once and once only, and it's cannoli. Spot on. You got I do. it. I do. I do yeah. this is the N, 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 N. Cannoli. I'm assuming it's Italian. Am I wrong? Hmm. I'm going to give you half a point for that. Oh. Well, that kind of, that, that's, that's burst my bubble. Okay, wait, wait, can I get one more guess? Yes. American Italian. Oh man, I'm going to give you a, I'm
1: actually going to give you half a point for that too. It turns out that there's three halves of a point though.
0: So. <laughs> Go on, where is it from?
1: It's from Sicily, which means oh. that it is not originally Italian. I didn't even think of it when I made the China-Italy comparison about the histories of how they weren't unified countries until recently. But that's the same thing here. You know, Sicily has been conquered throughout history by almost everyone. Yes. (laughs) People just coming through at all times. makes sense. It is in the middle of the Mediterranean and it's obviously a great center for trading and everyone wanted a piece of that going back to ancient times. So Sicilian culture is actually a really interesting mishmash of a lot of cultures. Basically anything um, surrounding the Mediterranean and going further inland than you would think has an influence on traditional Sicilian culture. Um, I gave you half a point for calling it Italian-American because, as is Americans want, it, this country is where people really got out of control with the cannoli and are adding the, <laughs> the dried fruit and the citrus peel and the nuts and chocolate and, you know, overdoing it, which is what we do oftentimes. So I think that that version of cannoli is what is often um, known in the world. New York style cannoli, let's call it. Do
0: you know what? Saying that, it's actually really funny because there's something else that I've just thought of while we're, while we're talking about the history of food. Um Obviously, the person here who loves food doesn't know much about the history of food, but my favourite thing in America are bagels. Mm-hmm. New York bagels. Now, I didn't actually realise that the origin of bagels came from Poland and Krakow. And we have something similar, um, this kind of like um, donut thing and it's kind of... Anyway, and finally they started making bagels again in Poland, especially in Krakow, like where they originated from. So they're not exactly like American because obviously the Americans added, you know, the everything bagel and things. <laughs> and, it's, and it's also <laughs> to do obviously with the water and things. But I'm finally a little bit happy. I have our own bagels. Yeah, I was gonna say, are they are they good? Do you enjoy them? Yeah, they're not they're not quite as good as an everything bagel because that just that hits the spot. But they're not bad actually.
1: Yeah, it's funny um, because a lot of purists, I agree. Everything bagels, I love sesame bagels. Hmm, I have a sesame thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there are some purists even to this day who won't eat anything but a plain bagel or maybe a salt bagel. Now I just think that's no way to live.
0: No, everything bagel is the only way to live.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. That's so, but it's, it's
0: coming back to your to your cannoli thing, where mm-hmm. you know it became. And I, I'm not. I don't want to offend any of my American friends. I mean, I've got American family, but you know, <laughs> it basically, it's okay. We don't mind. <laughs> it was hijacked by the Americans and just changed. I mean, it doesn't. I don't mean it's changed for the worst. We love, like I said, we love a good everything bagel. And uh, the cannolis in in, in, in New York are are amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is good. But they're both of them, um, you know, have their roots in Europe, which is true of so much food in New York. Um, But, yeah, people come to America and see a bounty of cheap products and get overly excited.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, like, for example, people think that bagels are an American. They are an American thing. Cannolis, yes, they are an American thing, but they are originated from somewhere completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty accurate way of looking at it. Absolutely. I love that. I'm quite interested in thinking how many other desserts that we don't actually think of every day uh, are the same. Yeah, there's probably a lot
1: of them. I'm just like now my brain is awash in different sweet things. and I'm thinking about, although I have to say, and this is something that I tweet about a lot because I get so worked up. Um Great British Bake Off very occasionally will have an American dessert challenge. Um, once they did a pie challenge, this season they did a brownie challenge. And every single contestant goes too far and seems to believe that all American desserts are these like 14 layer monstrosities. Oh my god. And it's, it's, I, I, I want to say this without being defensive, it's just not true. Like brownies are just brownies. Very rarely do people add toppings like in the in the Great British Bake Off they were adding all kinds of ingredients whereas in America the only additional green ingredient you'll ever see in a brownie is nuts.
0: And that is like considered brownie. pretty wild. Good brownie is is I mean is that, is that is that an American made dessert? A brownie? Do we know where that originated from? I imagine that it is. A lot of the
1: Simpler desserts are American and they were popularized in the mid century when the, all the food companies started sending out little recipe pamphlets with all of their boxed goods. And that's probably where brownies come from. I mean, I'm saying that, um, uh, I, I think that's
0: probably where it is. I haven't studied it. <laughs> I was going to throw chocolate, uh, into the mix here before we finish, but I'm assuming that's just going to put a whole downer on the podcast.
1: Yeah. I, um, Chocolate is actually not a fun thing to talk about. It's extremely upsetting. I mean if you're if you're talking about more than the flavour of chocolate, it's the product itself is it's not good. We should all be eating less of it,
0: etc. Do you know what? Let's revert back and do a podcast on chocolate. Because it is the greatest thing ever created by man, even though there is a depressing story behind it. And um Yeah. I'm gonna try and not feel guilty when I'm eating my chocolate later tonight.
1: Well, I will also say that there are some brands that you can eat and not feel guilty about. And one of them you might even have in Poland. It has such a strange name. It's Tony's Chocolonely. Don't mm-hmm. know why they called it that. It's a Dutch brand. And they know all of their growers and pay people a living wage. said all the things that most chocolate companies do not do. So, huh. there are options. There are options. Also, if you buy South American chocolate instead of African chocolate, you're more likely to be supporting an ethical company. I could go on. I should just I need to go back to the cannoli though. It's a much happier story. <laughs> go on, go on. Finish us finish us off with the cannoli story. So the most prosperous period in Sicilian history has actually been when it was an emirate um an Islamic kingdom from um, the eight hundreds to about the ten hundreds. Um The capital Palermo was an Arabic name Balarm, probably mispronouncing it. But you see, you see the association. Um, It just became one of much like Xi'an in this one era. It was just a world capital. Um, It took a long time for it to come about because, like, the Byzantines had been there directly before, and they sure didn't like giving up on Sicily. So it was actually conquered town by town, and then sometimes they would lose a town again, and then they would get it back, and there was. A lot of fighting, but at the same time, it was an extremely international place, just like Xi'an. I didn't even realize when I picked these two how many similarities they were. But it is it, it is um, one of those points we often forget that the ancient world and the uh, medieval wor- world were very sophisticated. There were a lot of international world capitals like this, and, and Sicily was one of them.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. A good cannoli, good key lime pie, or lime pie if you want to call it. Um, before we do finish, because however much we want to talk about it, we only have a limited amount of time. Tell can, artists- I tell you, yes?
1: can I tell you one thing first? I'm so sorry. No, go um, for it. The shape of the cannoli, I mean, you started it with the, with the sex talk. Um, it is believed that um, it was shaped by either concubines or nuns. But either way, it's a dick joke.
0: I don't think I'm (laughs) going to look at a cannoli in the same way ever again. I
1: know, it's very upsetting. (laughs) I don't know if that's just men being perverted and saying that because they want to think about a group of women working together to recreate dick shapes. But maybe it's true, too.
0: I mean, nuns are pretty spicy, actually, so it could be. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about eating penises from now on while I'm eating coconut. Thank you for that and I hope everybody does exactly the same as me. (laughs) (laughs) So, like I said, just before we do finish, I want you to tell our listeners where they can get hold of your podcast, how they can get hold of your podcast. Tell us all about it. Okay,
1: so my podcast is called Smart Mouth, which is two words. I didn't realize when I was naming it that some people spell that with one word. But it is Smart Mouth, and it is about food history and cultural history um, episodes almost every week, always with a guest who is sometimes a celebrity who tells me about their favorite food, and then we talk about the history of it. And honestly, we get... um, Stories that they haven't told before because it's their favorite food. So we get famous people talking about their childhood, which is kind of cool, too. (laughs) Sneaky of me. Um, You can find Smart Mouth on any podcast player, I believe. Um, You can also follow it on Instagram at Smart Mouth Pod. There's a newsletter. That is at smartmouth.substack.com. So there's all kind of places where you can find me
0: if you want to do that fabulous thank you so much Katherine, for joining us and uh, giving us a very interesting and fun overview of some of these desserts uh gutted we couldn't talk about chocolate but we're not going to put a downer on today so thank you so much thanks so much for having me this was fun join us on monday when phil weir will be back obviously to make alina's life a misery and talk all about boaty stuff specifically his new book on the little ships of dunkirk so don't miss that one We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.